Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Along with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. We are joined later by a true boxing renaissance man, a former world title holder who, in the space of a little over a week, has been in the corner of a major bout in Britain, commentated ringside for Showtime on another card in Brooklyn, and recorded the first episode of his relaunched podcast, the first episode of which drops tomorrow. Yes, the one and only Paulie Malanagi will be joining us. Uh, but first, it's time to look back on that card from Saturday from the Barclays Center. Uh, or uh, instead of us recording this whole podcast, maybe we could just stop right now and bring on Erickson Lubin to tell everyone exactly what we're going to say. Uh, and then the Seriously. two of us don't actually have to say it. Uh, who, who comes out and predicts a draw and then it's a draw? Unbelievable. Uh, unbelievable. I think I think Erickson Lubin got his hands on the Gray's Sports Almanac or something. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely calling him before I fill out my next round of picks on DraftKings. Seriously, I loved, uh, uh, talking of Paulie, uh, I loved his reaction right right when it was announced. Where's Erickson Lubin? <laughs> right. His first reaction was, yeah, that was kind of amazing. That's, uh, yep. Yeah, so the main event did indeed go just as Erickson Lubin predicted. Brian Castaño and Erislandi Lara battling to a split decision draw. Over 12 rounds of super welterweight action. Uh, there were a lot of very close rounds in there, uh, Eric. Uh, how did you score it, and, and would you like to see a rematch? So I had it uh, a draw myself, six rounds apiece. Um, when you say there were a lot of close rounds, I'll kind of disagree. I thought the majority of the rounds were clear-cut in one direction or the other. Maybe eight or so uh, were, were easy to score, in my view. But then there were a handful that were tough to score, just enough to create that little bit of swing that accounted for the judges having it from 7-5 one way to 7-5 the other way. Those were all good scorecards. Uh, and 116-112 would have been okay, I yeah. guess, if, if not ideal. Um, but I don't think you really could have had it any wider than that. This was a fight in which each guy won at least four rounds, probably five. Um, typically, people boo a draw and they refer to a draw as controversial. This one, I didn't catch much booing, and it really wasn't controversial. One, right. one of the least controversial draws in boxing history. Um, as for a rematch, I wouldn't say it's a case of, you know, must fight again. It was a decent fight, but not a great fight, and they could certainly move on and fight other opponents, and nobody would lose sleep over it. I'd say if one of them gets a better offer, a higher dollar offer, go ahead and take it. But they might not get a better offer, in which case, sure, I'm happy to watch them do this fight over again in July or August or something. Yeah, yeah, I think it isn't always the case. But if at the end of a fight, both fighters claim that they've been robbed, then maybe, then maybe the decision that was rendered was, was just about right. And I, <laughs> I agree with you. I think a draw was fine. I had it 15-13 for Castaño. Uh, yeah, just a good, close, interesting fight, I thought. Um, one of the subplots, you know, we wondered about this going into it. Um, whether Eris Landy Lara would still be the same after that Jarrett Hurd fight. Um, based on the way the fight unfolded and the way the, the Hurd fight happened, uh, can we conclude that at age 35 now, Eris Landy Lara is indeed slowing down? Well, I'll go back to my uh, highly unscientific pre fight math, uh, where I said if Lara is 90% of his prime self, he wins close, and if he's 80%, he loses close. So I guess he's exactly 85% of what he was in his prime, based on that math. Um, but 
Yeah, I saw some evidence that he's continuing to very slowly slip and show his age. You know, some guys hit the wall all at once, grow old overnight, whichever cliche you want to use. Lara isn't one of those guys. He's getting older very gradually. Mm. He clearly doesn't have the legs that he used to. Um, that wasn't just something about Jared Hurd's style forcing him to stand and trade more. Castaño did the same with him. So uh, so it's a trend now. There, there's a little less spring in Lara's step, uh, so he does less in the way of stepping. Um, but I'll say this for him. Around the end of the sixth, beginning of the seventh, right in the middle of the fight, I thought Castaño's pressure was really getting to him. I jotted yeah. down in my notes, Lara looking old. And then he rallied and had a good round seven and round eight. He dug in and kept winning about half the rounds down the stretch, even though he was clearly tiring. Um, but all in all, the legs aren't what they once were. The quickness and reflexes aren't what they once were. He's still a top guy in the division. I'm not sure he's in the conversation anymore for the top guy in the division. Uh, and you suspect he's going to keep slipping a little more with each fight from here on out. Talking about guys who may or may not still be among the top guys in their division. Um, in the co-main, Luis Ortiz managing to win pretty much every round against Christian Hammer, but without necessarily really impressing. It was an odd kind of fight, really. Um, mm. Does his stock go down a little bit, even in victory, do you think? It seems like quite a contrast to a year ago when he nearly had Deontay Wilder out. Um, mm. Does he seem like less of a threat now to beat one of the big three? I think his stock dropped ever so slightly, just incrementally. Um, this isn't going to cause as big of a reassessment as the Malik Scott fight did. Because remember, coming into that one, we were like, whoa, this this guy is the next big thing. And then afterwards, we thought, oh, maybe we all went overboard getting excited about this guy because mm -hmm. that fight was so dreadful. This one, he's still pretty much what we thought he was. He just couldn't get Hammer out of there. Um, but he also did get hit a lot. Hammer's game plan of countering with right hands was working at times. Uh, I gave Hammer one round, personally. Ortiz didn't look that great to my eye. Uh, so to answer the, the more specific question about the big three, yeah, I, I think the gap in our minds, uh, or at least my mind, I guess I shouldn't speak for anyone else, but the gap between the big three and Ortiz is widened. That, that tier mm. separation just became more clear um i'm still happy to see ortiz versus any of them uh and he has to be considered dangerous but he's a bit more of an underdog now he's at least closing in on 40 if he's not already over 40 nobody quite knows for sure i think i'd probably make him a slight underdog against Usyk also at this point maybe yeah, about cool. even money versus dillian white but let's give some credit to christian hammer uh, for just being really game and tough. Um, and on a side note, we have too many hammers right now. There's there's <laughs> Christian Hammer and Christina Hammer, uh, no. which are just one letter apart. That's awfully confusing uh, for a couple of Showtime podcasters. Uh, going, going behind the curtain a bit here, I had to cut a moment out of Friday's podcast where I noticed all of a sudden it dawned on me how similar the names are and and i got tripped up by it um plus we have erickson the hammer lubin too many hammers uh, a, a full toolbox is good as roy jones has told us many times this toolbox is overfilled with hammers fortunately fun fact christina hammer and christian hammer are very easy to tell apart in a lineup <laughs> I've only seen them in, in photos and on TV, not in person. So I'll, I'll have to take your word for it on that. 
Um, all right, in the opener, um, the awkward boxer knocked out the ostensible puncher as Eduardo Ramirez stopped Brian de Gracia in the ninth round of a fight that he had to that point been losing on two of the three scorecards. Uh, were you okay with the stoppage? And did you come away at all impressed with Ramirez? Uh, Kieran? Please welcome back to the podcast, the sadist that you know. Ah, and love. There he is. There he is. <laughs> Sadistic Raskin took a little vacation, uh, had a few weeks where he was happy with quick stoppages, but now now he's back. Um, the stoppage was a hair quick, in my opinion. Not not a tragedy, not a, not a uh, disaster, but a hair quick. Uh, obviously, DeGracia's legs were not listening to his brain so well. Uh, he was undoubtedly hurt. But he hadn't gone down. He was throwing some punches and he was in the fight, uh, as you mentioned, about the scorecards. You know, uh, one judge, the the always correct Steve Weisfeld, had it 76-76. The other two had DeGracia leading 77-75. In a fight like this, where it's about even and he hasn't gone down and he doesn't look incapable of defending himself, I would have liked Benji Estevez to give him a little more of an opportunity to recover and make a comeback. Uh, Although, I guess... The mildly controversial stoppage spared us from the possibility of a controversial decision. Uh, Whichever way the decision had gone in that fight, I think there would have been some debate over it if it had gone the distance. Mm. Um, But to your other question, I was rather impressed with Ramirez. You know, he's no future superstar or undisputed champ or anything like that, I don't think. But he's a slick, skilled boxer. I was really enjoying watching him do his thing. And I actually had Ramirez ahead in the fight, 77-75, before he hurt DeGracia. Um, Ramirez wasn't consistent about the way he was fighting, but when he was locked in, I thought he boxed beautifully in spots, making punches just miss and landing his own shots. And then he topped it off by flashing some unexpected power. Uh, You know, Ramirez, the feather-fisted featherweight, gets a (laughs) knockout. Ortiz, the heavy-handed heavyweight, goes the distance, just like we all expected, right? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, my first reaction also was that it was an early stoppage, although I, I, I did see what Paulie actually referred to in the commentary that, after the stoppage, still De Gracia didn't seem to know what was going on and was still like trying to go and fight, trying to do a Marlon Starling after getting knocked out and and just say he was ready to carry on, even though there were other people in the ring. So maybe Benji saw something in his eyes, saw that, you know, right. he was a little bit gone. But uh, yeah, that was my, my initial reaction. Partly also probably because I had picked De Gracia to win as well. <laughs> right. There, there's always that. Um, so speaking of uh, of what you picked, we should uh, update the scores in, in our picks competition uh, quickly. And to be clear, that's I'm not talking about the DraftKings competition where I finished in 1,944th place. There's probably no need to uh, to t- dig too deep on that. <laughs> I uh, although to check. <laughs> I will say a quick uh, congrats to C. Abanizio, who won the week. That's his screen name. C. Abanizio won the week. But in our little competition, we have just the smallest of updates. Uh, I was up 24 to 19 coming into the week. Not many points were scored between the two of us. Uh, we both got zeros for the draw in Lara Castaño. We each got one point for picking Ortiz, but uh, not by decision. And then I got one point for Ramirez, but I didn't have the KO. So I'm now ahead 26 to 20. And we actually got a couple of suggestions on Twitter for the stakes in our competition. Um Mark O, uh, Twitter handle at Marco518, wrote, Loser on points adopts winner's hairstyle for next Radio Row appearance. Um, as I replied to Mark, our hairstyles aren't that different or that outrageous, uh, and you might need some time to grow out the top to ma- yeah, match I'm, my I'm almost Kramer-esque sure. height. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm capable of adopting any other hairstyle. <laughs> 
the short, close crap look is, is all I you got. I could go the Umberto Soto route, and that's about it. <laughs> Uh, you're, you're, you're doing a lot better than Umberto Soto for what it's worth. But, uh, yeah, sounds, sounds like this, uh, this one is, is a no from both of us. I, I don't think, I don't think this one's going to work. Um, we got another interesting one here from, uh, from our friend Moose, uh, at Sandy Moose 0408, who writes, uh, if Kieran, if Eric wins, Kieran sings us a song. If Kieran wins, Eric has to pull out all the Sesame Street voices. Um, I'm fine with my end of that. Uh, I do a good Elmo and Cookie Monster and a, a passable Bert and Ernie and, and a solid Oscar the Grouch. I guess Moose heard one or two of them on the old Ring Theory podcast where my, my Latif Coyote and my Cookie Monster were the same voice. Um, but uh, So I'd be okay with it, but I don't know how you feel about singing a song. I tell you what, everybody would be rooting for me to win if you winning means that I'm singing the song. Because <laughs> no, nobody needs to hear that. But, you know laughing at you is always fun for everybody but you it all depends how much pain's involved okay, really i guess so <laughs> that's the thing that's the... <laughs> and also i probably like everybody else in terms of doing like sesame street impersonations my kermit the frog is exactly the same as my brian gumble and i think that's the same for most people <laughs> yeah you know it's funny of all the ones that i do and i sort of discovered as when my kids were little which voices i could and couldn't do kermit kermit was one that i never quite got um but uh, but all the others, yeah, I'm happy to do them on a podcast sometime if it's relevant. I don't know. I don't know that we need to make that uh, those the stakes in this. I, I, let's do this for now. We're playing for pride. We already have that. Indeed. And let, let's do this on top of that. Uh, Randolph and Mortimer Duke style. Let's bet a dollar. How's that go. sound? <laughs> um, and I figure if, if Brian Daly at Showtime wants to throw something else on top, something cool they have sitting around the Showtime office, a, a random piece of memorabilia or a gift card or whatever, then fine, we won't say no. But otherwise, pride and a dollar, and we're good to go. Of course, it's all uh, sort of moot, really, because Erickson Lubin's going to crush us all. <laughs> That's true. He's, he's not allowed he's in. enter at the last minute and just win <laughs> going away. We're, we're not playing against him. He can enter on DraftKings. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. All right. Let's get some real analysis in here, shall we? And actually <laughs> get somebody joining the podcast who knows what he's talking about and joining us now to talk some more about Saturday Night's Card, to look at a few other bits of boxing news and to tell us all about his own relaunch Showtime podcast. His former world champion and Showtime boxing analyst, the magic man himself, Paulie Malinaji. Paulie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. So we're fresh off a Showtime card in your backyard in Brooklyn. Uh, so let's start by picking your brain about those fights a, a little bit. Uh, Saturday's main event was probably the first exposure a lot of the Showtime audience had to Brian Castaño. And you have to imagine most people, whether they had him winning or not, came away impressed. What stood out to you about Castaño's performance and, and why was he able to be as effective as he was against Lara, who, who was viewed as the favorite coming into the fight? Um, you know, I think Castaño is a younger guy with that youthful energy. Um, I think we saw the pros and cons of Castaño. I think the pros are that he can be very exciting, and he's going to be a guy that, uh, uh, you know, can make for exciting fights. Uh, the negative is, you know, that he probably needs a lot of technical work. He doesn't really uh, do a good job of kind of working his way in. He kind of forces his way in, and he has good fighters with better legs that may cause him to troll. I thought it caused him a lot of trouble last night against Lara as well, even if it's maybe a, a past his prime Lara. Lara, I thought, boxed very well, and... Uh, and I thought it made it for a good competitive fight. But um, I think Castaño against the right kind of opposition can be a kind of a sort of a uh, center of the ring, phone booth type of warfare fighter. And uh, I think fans will really get a chance to like him. 
but uh, you probably want to see him more against guys who uh, don't aren't as agile or, or as athletic. Lara, besides the fact that he was a good, really, really great mover in his prime, he still has enough uh, bags, uh, tricks in the bag to uh, kind of throw off a bit of uh, of the all-out pressure style of Castaño. And I think uh, I think a draw was a justified uh, decision. I think both guys had their good moments. Yeah, you just alluded to this a little bit, and it does appear that Lara is a, a different fighter than he was even like 18 months or so ago. Um, you know, he's fighting a lot more flat-footed uh, against Castaño than we're used to. Do you think he can still be effective at the highest levels if he no longer has the kind of footwork, the movement that he had in his prime? And and you talked this about this a little bit on the broadcast. What kind of signs did you see, if any, that he's adapting to being a different kind of fighter? Um. You know, just because he's not as effective doesn't mean he's not still effective. You know, right. I think uh, Lara is a guy who has had so many wrinkles to his style. Say you get 80 or 75% of the old Arislandi Lara, I think it's still good enough to compete at the highest level, you know, mm. and beat a lot of world-class fighters or even trouble a lot of world-class fighters. Like Brian Castano is a world-class fighter. It's just he's in a different mood and a different style mm. than, uh, than a Stan Arislandi Lara. But, um, yeah, I think uh, I think he's going to have to uh, obviously show a couple of different wrinkles because, you know, he, he's mainly been a one and a one-two kind of guy most of his career, sort of in that uh, old-school old computerized scoring system of the amateurs where they kind of just 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 sharpshoot you and uh, and uh, score the points and then beat you and don't allow you themselves to get touched, you know? And he's mm-hmm. taken that style lovely even into the pros. But I do believe that um, as he gets a little slower on his feet, the ones and one-twos, uh, you probably need to be a bit more creative with it. And he's always been very creative. Don't get me wrong. He'll throw a left hand to the, he'll throw a one, two, where he'll throw the jab up top and a left hand to the stomach, you know, then he'll bury it where he'll, he'll kind of faint you and throw a one, two up top. You know, he, even with just a, a sharp, sharp one, two, he's done a, a, a southpaw sharp one, two. He's, he's done very, very well because he's managed to intermingle it with the movement and, and the rhythm changes and the feints and the angles. But I think as he's, uh, as, as he loses a lot of the movement, he loses a big part of that style. So I think uh, it, it, it forces him to kind of, be a little bit better in the pocket, be a little bit more uh, uh, down and dirty in there, um, and maybe sit down a little bit more on his shots inside and, and whip hard shots to the body and sort of necessitate the need for more head movement. You know, like one thing about defense in boxing, it's either head movement, it's blocking punches, or it's your legs. It's one of those three. But you really can't use head movement and your feet at the same time. It's got to be one or the other. So Because, you know, if you're moving, your feet are moving, your, head's not, your, your, your head is going to kind of be all discombobulated if you're trying to move it as your feet are moving, you know? So... So, um, so I, I think Lara is sometimes a bit more flat-footed, but you see him on the inside kind of uh, uh, rolling underneath punches or kind of giving that little half pullback on the punches and kind of coming back with counters. And I think you see a lot of that talent still there, just he's, uh, has, he has to attribute it to a, a sort of a, a, an, evol- an evolution of his style in order to survive because he's not moving as much. And, and of course, these youthful all-out pressure guys, are, are you know, they're very enthusiastic about getting to him. So... He, he's not going to have the legs to, to just, he's not going to be able to hold them off just with the legs. Right. So, so Lara and Castaño are both part of what is now a, a pretty talented mix at the top end of the 154 pound division. And fortunately with, with the exception of Jaime Munguia, pretty much all of them are PBC fighters. So we're likely to see plenty more fights between the top guys. You know, we have Castaño and Lara. We also have Hurd, Tony Harrison, Jamel Charlo. Is there a matchup or two at the weight, that you'd particularly like to see, Paulie, if you were making the matches? Um, you know, I, I don't have a, a, a particular matchup. Uh, obviously, you know, the one that really sticks out to me, but we're probably not going to get to see it because of the politics, would be Castaño and Munguia, you know, just because Castaño is fresh on my yeah. mind with the all-out style. And, uh, and Munguia likes, uh, likes a good tear-up as well, you know. I think that would be a, a fun fight, but unfortunately, the politics 
of boxing because they're aligned to different teams won't, probably won't allow that. So within the, but within the PBC team, I think we have a lot of potential matchups. We have a lot of good fights. And, um, and, and, and I think, uh, you, you can't really go wrong if you mix and match uh, any of those two guys. You know, you have the resurgence of Erickson Lugan from a couple of weeks ago. You know, right. you have a Castagna coming up. You know, you've almost got this sort of new generation coming in while the old regime is still not past their prime. Mm. And even some of the guys that were considered past their prime, like Alara, are still hanging on tight and uh, still uh, proving to be very effective. So you've got almost a, a, a three different generation mix in here right now uh, uh, in, in, in the junior middleweight division, in the light middleweight division. And, uh, and I think uh, you can make some good fun fights. Um, switching to the co-main uh, on Saturday night, uh, Luis Ortiz was dominant against Christian Hammer, but not entirely convincing. Do you think, was he overlooking Hammer a bit or maybe showing some signs of decline or is it just being unfair? Should we in fact acknowledge that Hammer is an experienced and solid pro and maybe we should actually be giving Ortiz credit for basically winning every round? I don't think it's out of the question to, to question a guy what he's got left when he's 40 years old. I think it's you know, nature takes its course. So we always wonder anytime a guy who's a little bit advanced in age starts to look almost subpar. But having said that, I thought, I think Luis Ortiz, if he, he looks subpar, would be a bit uh, too hard on him. You know, I, th- I thought he boxed very well. Um, and he had a guy who was, had a lot of experience, even a lot of amateur experience. I said on the broadcast, he's a former amateur uh, junior world champion, you know, uh, in the amateurs. So, you know, he's the guy who, you know, you don't win those kind of tournaments in the amateurs if you don't have a, a solid pedigree, you know. And he's been in with some very good fighters in the pros as well. He knows how to handle himself. He knows how to survive in there. He knows how to render himself dangerous. And he, he didn't, you know, he was kind of uh, picking his little spots. I don't think Hammer ever, in, ever figured, out, figured that he would win a decision, you know. And, and, and Ortiz from the center of that jab controlled a lot of that. But I think Hammer, in his spots that he chose to fight, uh, he stayed tight all the rest of the time so that he wouldn't be in danger. But in the spots that he chose to fight, he rendered himself very dangerous, throwing some very hard shots and, of course, using his physicality in there. So, so I, I think it was a... a, a very good use of his experience, but uh, I thought uh, Ortiz was able to uh, be intelligent about the whole thing and, uh, and box very well. All right. Well, we're going to want to talk about a, a couple of upcoming fights, but before we do, let's go back one week further. Um, a, a little over a week ago, you were in England working in the corner for your friend James DeGale and his battle with Chris Eubank Jr. Unfortunately, he, he came up short. Um, I know you're not scoring it in the corner the same way as you are when you're ringside or watching on TV, but did you see the same fight we did, which had Eubank basically winning about 10 or so out of the 12 rounds? Or did you think it was closer, like like two of the judges had it and, and that your guy DeGale w- was in the fight? Um, You know, we, we thought he was in the fight, and I, I still think he was in the fight. But late in the fight, we kind of knew. I, I, I knew the fight had slipped away when 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 Eubank had lost a point in, I think, round 10 or 11, and, uh, and then James couldn't win the rest of the round. Because I felt like if we could get that round and then win round 12, 10, 9, we might salvage something, you know? So that was in my mind. So I felt like we were in the fight to that point. But once, once he didn't win the two-point round, um, and it, it was, became essentially a 9-9 round because Eubank lost a point, I felt like, I felt like it was going to be very tough to, to really see any kind of scorecard going our way. You know, obviously, you're, you're trying to look for, every re- look for every reason to give your guy the fight. I felt like early on in the fight, we were the better boxer, right? Uh, going into the fight, not early on, but going into the fight. And I thought in round one, we, we did a decent job. But I, already I could tell in round one, it wasn't going to be the James DeGale that, you know, had the great legs and was going to be able to kind of move circles around Eubank. So I felt like he was sharpshooting very well, but just like Eubank was looking for one shot at a time, I felt like James only had enough legs to not withstand the combination, but maybe two, two at a time himself, you know? So I looked at it almost like, okay, I see what's going on here. I think we can be sharper than Eubank. And I think 
if we use almost a John Ruiz-ish type style, it won't be very fun, but we can almost like land a couple of sharp shots, sharp left hands, a couple of sharp jabs in every round, not get touched, and, uh, uh, you know, obviously smother a lot and then a little roughhousing inside, but that prevents Eubank from working. And, and then that'll win us the round. Now, obviously, that wasn't the game plan going into the fight, but once I saw James, the condition of James' legs in the fight, I said, okay, maybe this is the way it could be. Right. Once he got in round two, however, I, I realized that his legs were not going to come back. And that's sort of like, you know, the older, the old, the older uh, fighter kind of going, uh, uh, you know, go, it, 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 the effects of the punches in his career and whatnot. You, you may take a good shot early in your career, even if it hurts you, you come back very solid a couple of rounds later. You know, James, I don't think James' legs ever recovered from round two. He was, his mind was in the fight. He wanted to be in the fight, and, he, and, he, and he, he fought with a lot of heart. But I don't think the condition of James' legs were ever the same after round two. Um, he was feeling every shot he got hit with. Um, and he was, um, and he was kind of, uh, uh, he, he never looked like he had full balance, even when he wasn't getting hit, you know, but having said that there were still many rounds in the middle rounds where, you know, he was still doing that little sharpshooting thing and, and preventing Eubank from, from landing anything solid many times, you know, anytime, you know, that's the thing about that kind of style. If you're going to sharpshoot a little bit, little shots, one big shot by the other guy costs you the round, you know, right. you almost have to fight perfect rounds, you know? Mm-hmm. And I felt like there were some rounds in between where James prevented Eubank. It was almost like, instead of instead of uh, uh, going for the win every round, you're almost fighting every round to not lose it. You know, you're just kind of sharpshooting. And you, if, you can, if you can do enough of that, you can kind of push some of the rounds your way, you know? And I was only thinking that, obviously that wasn't the game plan going into the fight, but I was only thinking that once James was in the midst of the fight and realized, you know, what kind of, uh, what kind of, ur- of urgency Eubank was starting to bring and the kind of legs James had, you know? And I was trying to kind of, you try to figure out that little balancing act, you know? You try to figure it out any way you can. And you try to motivate your your fighter anyway you can and Jim McDonald was also doing a, a you know a, a job in there trying to motivate James and, I, and, I, and one thing I will say I think the James DeGale of old I don't think that fight is that very competitive and that's nothing against Eubank I think Eubank is a solid guy but I think I think the James DeGale that we've all come to know and love the James DeGale that beat Andre the Rub, James DeGale that beat Lucian Boutet you know I don't I don't think that's a fight where it's it, 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 where a, a, a Eubank gets a lot done as Eubank under the condition James was under in that fight probably should have done a little bit better. He probably should have been a bit more creative in opening him up. Um, and I was glad that he wasn't. You know, he was sort of right. forcing everything. He was sort of shooting one at a time, very hard punch. He wanted to get James out of there, clearly. But he wasn't going about it in a very intelligent way. And it allowed James to kind of get through the rounds and sometimes even steal some rounds, you know, uh, sort of sharp shots. Um, but uh, in the end, you know, I think you realize James DeGale without the legs of old is, is probably, you know, it's probably best that he retires. Uh, he's got no, he's got nothing to really uh, be down about, you know. Uh, an Olympic gold medal and two world titles. If anybody tells you that's what you'll get at the beginning of your career when you're turning pros, if anybody tells you uh, when you start, actually when you first walk in the gym, somebody tells you that this this story is going to end with an Olympic gold medal and two world titles. I think you'll sign on the dotted line right there, you know. Right. So I don't anything. I don't think anything. James, anything to feel down about. Um, and he did announce a few days afterwards that that he was going to retire, and he, and he sort of said he didn't like to admit it, but obviously, as you were just saying, his body wasn't the same. Um, I'm wondering, it sounds a little bit from what you're saying as if the possibility that this might be the end of the road was kind of on your minds a little bit going into the fight. You knew that James, you know, had had, had, had a lot of tough fights and that. So were you going into that a little bit aware that this might be the end? Um, I was, and I didn't spend the whole time in camp, but I, I liked the way James' legs had looked in camp. Um, I just, uh, yeah, I didn't spend enough time in camp to really be able to make a full judgment, a full gauge on it. You know, uh, I saw only one sparring session in England and he didn't look, he didn't look bad. Well, a couple of things I would have liked to see, but he honestly, he didn't look bad in the sparring. You know, again, 
once the eight ounce or 10 ounce glove hits you in the chin and they, the, your legs are rocked, your ability to recover is a lot different than when you're getting hit with 16 ounce gloves and a headgear. And, you know, you're, you're, you may feel the punches, but you don't actually feel, feel the, the, the concussive blows. You know what I'm saying? So, so it's, 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 it, it, even the shots he took in the gym, I wasn't really worried about it because his legs look so good that, that, you know, I feel, you know, he could skate away from danger anytime the occasional right hand or occasional left hook would touch him, you know? But of course I, I, I knew going into the fight, I didn't want Eubank to, you know, to touch with the occasional right hand or the hook because I know he can punch. And I, I was trying to stress in James's mind, not, it's more, even more importantly than slipping those shots, it's more important that you take away the confidence of Eubank from wanting to even throw those punches, you know? Mm. And that's kind of what I, I, I tried to stress in there, but uh, going into the fight. But of course, you know, it, it, the fight evolved a certain way, and you obviously have to take into, into account the enthusiasm of the opponent as well. So how did you find working the corner to be? Is this something we should expect to see you doing more of? No, no, no. I was just, uh, uh, James is a friend of mine, and um, you know, I was, I was glad to be a part of the team, and I'm glad to have gone through that experience, don't get me wrong, but I don't think I have enough time to actually be a, 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 a trainer of that, to that degree, you know? Uh, I even told James, uh, I'll assist Jim, uh, and, and Jim has been there, the, you know, his whole career, and Jim is, and him has had a, a, a great, a great run together. But I, you know, I, the most I can possibly do is, is be the assistant in the corner, you know. And even that, you know, I don't spend enough time in camp to really give the full assessment. But I can, I, you know, obviously, uh, James really wanted me in the corner to kind of give the uh, the honest assessment of what was what was happening. Um, he wanted me to kind of be hard on him, you know. Uh, Jim and him have a different dynamic, so he just told me, you know, in the corner. If you're seeing something that needs to be said, just please say it, you know. And um, and of course, you know, I was trying. It was it was very difficult because as a friend, you're you're not you're not just working for for money there. You know, you're working uh, with a friend there. And so, you know, it's almost like you're you you have this paradox inside you. Do I push him to try to win this fight, knowing he could get himself hurt and get himself knocked out? You know, James is, you know, he's he's uh 33 years old, and you know, he's uh, he's had a lot of tough fights. And I could see the punch resistance in him wasn't the same as it used to be, you know? So it's all, but I also knew at a point in the fight, he needed to push the fight. He needed to kind of go take this fight. He needed to grab this fight, grab the bull by the horns and take control of this fight or he wasn't going to win it. And it was sort of a paradox I was in there because, you know, I, I obviously with him being my friend, I, I care about his well-being as well. You know, I care about, you know, his health as well. So it was very, it, it was very, uh, uh, um, I want to say difficult, but I, but I guess that's the word you want to use. Uh, in order to try to give the instructions to push him, while also knowing in the back of my mind these instructions could also get himself get him get him mm. knocked out because he's got to kind of go for it, you know. And um, you know, ultimately, all's well that ends well. Listen, he didn't get the win, but he comes out healthy, safe, and sound, and uh, he made some good money to end his career. And uh, he's got a a career that he can look back on very very fondly. And 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 I think anybody associated with James Gale can be proud of him. Right. Okay, uh, let's look ahead to a couple of upcoming fights over the next two weeks, both of which are, are right in your wheelhouse. Uh, first up, on March 9th, Sean Porter takes on your Dennis Ugas uh, at the Dignity Health Sports Park in, in Carson, California. Porter looked sensational when he faced you five years ago, uh, but in his next fight, he, he dropped a majority decision to Cal Brook, and three fights after that, he lost to Keith Thurman. It looked like maybe that was his level, a guy who can't quite get over that particular hump. Uh, but just last September, he scored a unanimous decision win over Danny Garcia. So is this a, a sign of inconsistency or, or just of the closeness and quality at, at the top of the welterweight division the last few years? Uh, and, and how do you see Porter doing next week? 
I think it's more so the consistency at the top of the division. You know, there's a very good top of that division. And uh, I don't think there's any uh, any shame in losing to Kell Brook and Keith Thurman. Uh, right. I, I think Kell Brook is probably one of the most underrated fighters of this generation. I think if Kell would have got his hands on a lot of the welterweights in this generation, he would have beat probably most of them, no matter how elite they are. You know, it's just you know the world's never going to get to find that out because you know he was never able to get those fights. So I don't. But he did get his hands on Sean Porter. So so ultimately, it makes maybe it doesn't make the look on the loss on Sean Porter's record look as glossy because Kell wasn't able to get a lot of the other names to fight him. You know, so. So right. Porter being the only one, he beat him. Uh, but I don't think there's any shame in losing to Kell Brook, and I don't think there's any shame in losing to a, a, Keith, a prime Keith Thurman, a pre-injury Keith Thurman. You know, I think uh, uh, he fought very well in those fights. Uh, Porter, you know, did what he what he tried to do, what he wanted to do, and he made those fights competitive, and he made those fights good. Um, Ugas is a former super lightweight. One thing uh, from my own experience of show, with Sean Porter and the experience of ex, other ex super lightweights. Uh, fighting this big uh, physical welterweight is uh, the weight class matters, you know? Not so much with the punching power. Obviously, that has always has something to do with it, but also the, the, the physicality of the fight. He's a very physical kind of pushing kind of fighter, you know? And uh, I, I think an ex-super lightweight uh, has a lot more trouble dealing with his physicality. Credit to Danny Garcia for dealing with it very well and making the fight competitive, you know, because Danny is a, is almost, was almost a big ex-super lightweight and kind of fit well into the welterweight division. But myself, Devin Alexander, guys like that, you know, I don't, I don't know how how well we've ended up fitting into the welterweight division against physical welterweights. Tactically and technically, we were obviously brilliant enough to win world titles, but against physical welterweights, you know, you start to kind of see your limits uh, as an ex-super lightweight. I, that's, this is where I, I have a question for Ugas, and I'm not sure of this yet. You know, uh, Ugas is a very brilliantly tactical fighter as well. He's an ex-super lightweight as well, ex-Cuban ex, uh, standout amateur. I believe he's an amateur world champion even, you know? So, so he's going to have the technique and the, and the, technical ability to, to deal with the fight of this level but this is, is the physicality of the fight when because when sean makes the fight very physical he almost eliminates the talent part of the fight he just makes it almost like a rugby player or like a an american football player just, he just bashes you physically and disrupts your balance disrupts your timing and disrupts everything and then puts you on that back foot in that defensive posture in that defensive position and then he once he disrupts all that you kind of have nothing to deal with him except trying to be physical back with him and that's not that's a fight you're never going to win as a guy who's not naturally as big as him. So, so that's my question going into this fight. Is, is, is Uga's going to be able to deal with that? Because although Sean Porter has shown us some technical fights, uh, mainly that the fight against Danny Garcia, where he went to a technical-based style because he saw Danny could deal with the physicality, I, I, don't know that, I, I don't know that he's going to go back to doing a lot of that technical stuff against a guy like Uga's, whose main assets are the technical boxing. So I think he's going to fight Uga's much the way he tried to fight myself or much the way he fought uh, Devin Alexander and guys like that. I'm I'm wondering if something similar applies to the to the fight that's taking place the week after that one of the most eagerly anticipated fights of the year so far, Mikey Garcia, uh, meeting Errol Spence. Um, how highly do you rate Spence? And and is it the same kind of thing here that applies as you just talked about? As good as Garcia undoubtedly is, has he bitten off more than he can handle and taken on a, a young strong welterweight here? Both of these guys are just next level, though. Both of these guys are next mm. level talent, next level ability. So if this is Porter and Ugas, Porter and Ugas is a microcosm of, mm. of, of Spence and Garcia because uh, Porter and Spence and Garcia is, is, is that, but at a much, much higher level. Yes, it's, it's a naturally smaller guy fighting the naturally bigger guy. But, but you know, now that's probably where the, where the comparisons end because I think the talent base of Spence and Garcia are really, really high. Not, not, not to say that Porter has no physical, technical talents, but Porter's best assets are his physicality. And Uber does have technical ability, and that's a Cuban amateur standout world champion. But Garcia seems to carry a bit more power, a bit more pop in his shots to get the attention of these bigger guys. So I think, um, you know, it, it, ultimately the same thing does come into play, and you have to see if 
uh, how, how it's dealt with. I, I think, uh, I think as the fight gets closer, we get more and more excited about it. This is one of those fights where you, when they first signed it, you're like, are these guys crazy? Are these guys out of their minds? <laughs> this but you know, I think as the fight gets closer, you start to kind of think about it more and more. And maybe you're convincing yourself. Maybe you're in denial. I don't know. Maybe Mikey's in denial. Maybe we're, maybe we're the ones in denial for not believing in him. I don't know. But in the end, I think, uh, uh we, we all get more and more excited as the fight gets closer. Yeah. All right. Before we let you go, uh, this week sees the relaunch of your podcast with your friend Peter Cards uh, on the Showtime Podcast Network. For those who have never heard it, uh, tell us a, a little about it and what can we expect and, and what's going to be in this week's episode. I, I assume you have a lot of pent up podcasting to get out. Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of pent-up podcasting to get out. We didn't do a lot of episodes in 2018, but we're excited about the relaunch. And for anybody that hasn't listened to it, this is your old-school New York podcast. You know, with the old-school meaning, you know, there's not a lot of us old-school New Yorkers left where, you know, where you have the, the attitude and, and, and the accent and, and just the, the way, our way of thinking is much more different than, you know, modern New Yorkers or, or just modern, modern uh, society in general. You know what I'm saying? So we we're kind of go off the handle sometimes uh, with our opinions. But uh, we're, we're very, very opinion-based. Even on boxing, we love talking boxing, obviously, and that's going to be our main thing. But you know, we love talking uh, uh, Italian-American gangster films or even comedy <laughs> films. You know, We may make a reference to a movie. We may use a movie line. And you, if, if you've seen that movie, you'll understand the inside joke. If you haven't seen that movie, you, uh, you, it'll kind of just fly over your head. You know, uh, We'll randomly make a little uh, – in the middle of the mix of our conversations, we'll randomly use movie lines that apply in the moment. But um, you know, obviously, if, you, if, you're, if you're on the same wavelength as we are – those kind of little subtle inside jokes become funnier. If you're not, eh, you know, maybe you'll learn as you go along. But uh, <laughs> if you love boxing, if you love uh, the New York attitude, then uh, it's definitely something that uh, you should come watch and you, uh, come, come listen to. And uh, even if you don't love it, you know, I think uh, you'll find it very interesting to, to see uh, how, how, how this side of the society still works. Some of us still left. <laughs> Awesome, man. Well, look, we look forward to listening to it. And uh, hey, thanks so much for coming on. This has been really great. We really appreciated having you on the show. Thanks, man. Always a pleasure, and uh, I'll speak to you guys soon. Great. You Take care, Polly. All right. Let's just look at a couple other news items and upcoming fights uh, to finish off. Uh, first of all, next Saturday at one of my very favorite venues, Turning Stone Resort and Casino, uh, DAZN has a strong show headlined by Dimitri Bivol against Joe Smith Jr. I, I like this card, and I like that main event. I would probably have driven to it, actually, if it weren't for the fact that I'm flying to Alaska the next day. Yes, my midwinter break from Vermont <laughs> is to Alaska. You're I'm an unusual man, Karen Mulvaney. <laughs> unusual man. It's very true. Um, so I am stubbornly staying on the Bivol train. I'm not going to give up my ride here. Um, I know that you're, I don't know if you've gotten off, but you. I get the impression you at least have one foot on the platform <laughs> after his last few uh, performances. Um, is that fair to say? And do you agree with me that actually Joe Smith might be the perfect opponent for Bivol to, to look good against? So I, I wouldn't say I've hopped off the train or even have a foot off of it, I'm, but I'm definitely not sitting in the conductor car uh, like okay. I was after the Sullivan Barrera fight. Uh, I've, I've cooled for sure after these last couple. Kind of Bivol... hanging out in the cafe car or something like that. Yeah, that sounds good. Do they have any yeah. uh, any lactose-free milk options with their coffee? If so, that's where where you can find it. I have a pretty, pretty decent vegan burger I found, actually. Oh, so okay. Maybe. All right. Good to yeah. know. Noted. Um, so... <laughs> Bivol is uh, is clearly an elite talent, um, and I would say that yeah, at first blush, Joe Smith is probably a good fit for him stylistically. However, Smith is dangerous uh, and 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 also tough. Um, he's a puncher. 
He shocked Fanfara in one round, as we discussed recently. Um, he knocked Bernard Hopkins out of the ring. He had Sullivan Brera down for a moment before losing on points. He's kind of slow, and, he, and he's easy to find. So Bivol should look good outboxing him, but I could also see Smith clipping Bivol and hurting him. Yeah. Uh, and I could also see him doing kind of what Christian Hammer did against King Kong Ortiz, which is getting beaten up but staying on his feet and lasting the distance, just like the last couple of Bivol opponents did. So I don't know. Uh, I'd say if Bivol looks good and gets the stoppage win, that would mean something and, and maybe help me move up a few cars on the train again. Um, but I, I wouldn't rule out something shocking happening. Uh, I looked it up. Smith is a 9-1 to underdog. It's a, it's a little mm. tempting. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You need, you need you need me to drive over the border into Jersey and place a bet for you. That's, that was three three hmms. Sounds sounds like uh, you got money one, on this. your mind. Yeah. No, that is that is a bit extreme. No, no, I'm I'm sticking with my boy. I, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not even going to take a punt against him. I, I think I do think this is the kind of. I would think the most likely scenario, Smith is going to come to fight, right? And I th- and that's the most important thing in terms of getting something out of Bivol. So that's that's why I think it will probably be a pretty entertaining fight. Uh, we haven't seen much of Joe Smith since. Um, his own fight with Sullivan Pereira, and he had a broken jaw in that, of course. So um, it will be interesting to see uh, what he still has. Yeah. All right, and one final piece of news. We end the show on a sad note. Uh, Eusebio Pedroza died last week of pancreatic cancer, the news arriving just as we recorded Friday's podcast. He was only 62, uh, would have actually turned 63 on Saturday. The Panamanian held a featherweight world title for a very long time, from 1978 until 1985. He's a Hall of Famer, enshrined in 1999. Kieran, what else can you tell us about Eusebio Pedroza? Yeah, and he he had uh, some good wins against quality opposition, guys like Juan Laporte, and two wins over Rocky Lockridge, who also uh, recently Mm. passed away, of course. Um, The thing that I most remember him for, and that certainly a generation of British boxing fans know him for, is he lost his title to Barry McGuigan uh, on a June night in 1985. And the interesting thing about that fight is it was actually the first live televised boxing broadcast on the BBC, amazingly enough. Um, And... Mm. McGuigan was such hot property, even before he won won that title, that 19 million people watched that fight in a country where the population was about 56 million at the time. So basically wow. more than one in three people in the country watched <laughs> that fight, which is just absolutely amazing, really. And it was a good fight. Uh, uh, Pedroza was leading early on before McGuigan kind of uh, sort of overtook him and uh, had him hurt down in the seventh, I think, hurt in the ninth and the 13th. Yes, kids, there was a 13th round <laughs> and a 14th and a 15th. Um, classy guy, by all accounts, as well as a very, very good um, featherweight champion. So rest in peace there, Eusebio Pedroza. Uh, all right, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. As I noted, I will be off to Alaska next week, but we will be sure to record another edition of the podcast before I go. As we look ahead to the matchup we discussed with Paulie, the Fox pay-per-view clash between Errol Spence and Mikey Garcia. Until then, thanks for listening.